just to say we are a very social church family here at St. D's and um, it's, you know, our passion here is that we would grow vertically, you know, with God, but also horizontally across the congregation. And um, that's hard to do on a Sunday. Uh, it's great to do when you've got extended time as we had last weekend, but that's not available to us every weekend. We have got a local hostelry over the road uh, called uh, the White Horse. It is, uh, recovery is something we have a very high priority here with uh, at St. D's. We don't want anyone to stumble or, or struggle because of that. Uh, but we do encourage you, um, if you are new, if you would like to connect with other people, there's normally a group of people who will head in that direction. If that is going to cause you any struggles at all, we'd encourage you not to go. Um, but we always recommend a non-alcoholic drink is always a good decision for anyone in any group, whether that recovery is an issue for you or not. And if you can encourage one another in recovery uh, without shame, uh, that was a really fantastic thing to do too. So um, do hang around after the service if you want to head in that direction and get to know a few more people from the church. We'd love you uh, to do that. And we have life groups here, which are a chance to go deeper every week uh, with other people uh, to explore the scriptures together and grow in faith and family. So have a look at our website if you'd like to find out a bit more about that. <clears throat> um, well, uh, as I said earlier, the weekend away is one of those great moments when everyone goes away and has a fantastic time. And the people who haven't gone away feel terrible and wish that they'd gone away generally, and feel bad, and then made to feel bad by other Christians who say, did you like teaching session five or seven, and make them feel particularly unholy. Uh, but we're not going to do anything like that here tonight. Um, but what we are going to do is, is try and if you like, flesh out, I think, one of the most important um, elements of particularly Simon Ponsonby's teaching. Simon was a mentor of mine when I was at Oxford, uh, and uh, he looked after me when I was um, doing the Oxford pastorate. I talked a bit about that again on the weekend, so sorry, sorry to keep saying about the weekend, the weekend, the weekend. Um, but what Simon did, to, did for me, um, I'd worked with him actually for three years as an intern, was really um, helped me put flesh on the bone in terms of lifestyle and discipleship. And I was just chatting this morning to, to some folk in the congregation about how, you know, some of us are pioneers and starters, but actually the, the value of being a discipler is, is a different virtue and a really important one. Um, and sometimes, particularly in, charismatic, in the charismatic spirituality, which we're a part, we can be very forward-focused. We attract people who are like, yeah, come on, what's the next great thing? Paint me a big picture. And we all love lovely big pictures and feel like, wow, that's so exciting. But then we don't actually get to realize what that picture looks like. So we can kind of be stirred in our spirit by something really exciting, a vision of something fantastic. But do we actually like, manage the transition or meet the change and then land? And um, Simon's normally very practical, but you know, on, in many ways, on, on, uh, particularly on Saturday night, he was, he was quite prophetic. And I know a number of you found that really enjoyable. I certainly did. But uh, I also know from a number of your sort of feedback via life group, there's quite a lot of people saying, well, I loved it, but what do I do? Now, just to praise you, Simon's final talk was about the river. He talked a lot about the church. And then he talked about us in Christ, and then he talked about the river. And the church was a narrative around the fact that, look, over the last 30 years, he described the parable of the fig tree where there was no figs, and actually the, the kind of the landowner's going, look, should we chop it down? The gardener's saying, no, let's dig around it, fertilize it, water it, give it a year and see how it goes, and see if it produces figs. And then we talked about the tide of the river. The tide goes out, as it does in London, 24 meters, and after a while, after seven hours, the tide comes back in again. Feels like the tide's been going out in the Church of England for a very long time, but actually the tide's not just going to keep on going out, we believe, that tide's actually going to come back in again. So 
prophetic hope for what hasn't yet been realized. And then the third talk was about, well, if we can kind of encounter Jesus and then kind of get in the river spiritually together to encounter more of him, that would be a good thing. And actually, we all need to do that. So this is kind of called prophetically to kind of dive in to the water of Jesus, not to think about managing the climb or keeping the pews warm or keeping the lights on, but let's just go all in for Jesus. He said, butchers, butcher, he used to be a butcher. Butchers do meat, he said. You know, builders do bricks. Christians do Christianing stuff. Jesus, that's the thing. So do the main and the plain, effectively. And he linked that into Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams delight the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The irony being there is no, no river in Jerusalem. It's kind of very dry, very arid on a hill. And the reality is that this was a prophetic, probably an Ezekiel-like river coming from the altar of God that's feeding the people. And Jesus, the lamb on the altar, if you like, invites us into that stream of God's pleasure, God's sanctification, and that stream is a stream of people the kind of the kingdom coming much more than it is a stream of water. Hold all that stuff together for a moment. So we've got this idea of the church really shaking over here in decline and struggling. And then we've got this image of the kingdom of God over here with the church, the bride of Christ, growing and flourishing. And for many of us, we've been singing kind of uh, delirious revival songs for the last 30 years, showing my age now. And still thinking, how long is this tide going to keep on going out? Because I'm still ready for history makers and history shakers and planet shakers and planet movers and all sorts of other planetary things. But I'm just not seeing very much of that. Although I would say, if I was going to give a trust pilot review to some Ds, it would kind of get my five green blobs for being absolutely amazing. But of course, what we're experiencing here isn't something that necessarily is being replicated across the country. We are unusual. I think the mean Anglican congregation is around 29 people on a good day, and so the church isn't in great shape. We are seeing a lot of discussion around schism and disagreement on issues of theology, on issues of human sexuality, on issues of doctrine and praxis, all across the board, and that's hard. And I just want to empathize with you. I've been working for this institution for the last 20 years. It's challenging. It's hard when you wake up and the organization you work for is on the front cover of the newspapers all the time, generally in a bad way. It's hard. And you maybe feel a little exhausted. But what I do want to stir you towards is hope. Because even though the tide might have been going out for some time, and even though there might not be any apparent figs on the fig tree, Actually, Jesus is still on the throne, and it's still his church. And ultimately, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's just kind of recognizing that that might not correlate to our particular time frame. Now, that's a way of pricing into this story. But I, I think, again, it's lovely to talk in meta-narratives around fig trees bearing figs and tides coming back in. And yes, come on, that's what the Lord's going to do. But we can't just sit by and watch, hoping that that's what's going to happen without our agency. So I want to help us to think about how we can actually get into the river rather than just saying, oh, the river sounds great. Thanks very much. I'm really stirred up by that. And we're going to do that by stepping into John chapter 5 and a passage around healing, which is uh, verses 1 through 15. If you'd like to grab a Bible, there are loads of them over there on the shelf, too many for my comfort. And uh, not that I don't like the Bible, but just there's too many on the shelves. They should be in your hands. And uh, you have devices uh, where you can also read the Bible. So do grab one without embarrassment. 
uh, right now, and we're here in John chapter 5. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up from Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who had there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been there in this condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Whilst I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on, the which he, on the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man was healed and had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, it seems to me in our reading of John 5, there's an image of a similar situation that we described. How do I get into the waters effectively? You know, how do I get into this river? Here we are, a great many people with various illnesses and disabilities are longing for a healing that they haven't yet realized. We're longing for the healing or the restoration of a church that we haven't yet seen realized. The means to get there requires uh, to get into the waters of the pool at the moment when the waters are stirred, or that's what's been suggested. The commentators are divided over the healing properties of this pool what we do know about it is it's likely to be used for ceremonial washing for access to the temple. So you kind of get ceremonially clean in order that you could then access worship. The trouble was that all of these people who had disabilities of different kinds and, and leprosy, who were paralyzed and were missing limbs, were unclean whether they were washed or not. And so they weren't allowed into the temple. So your physical health condition was an indicator of your ability to participate in temple worship. So these people were generally excluded, both physically and also spiritually. This had become a gathering place in verse 3. It says that a great number of the blind, lame, and paralyzed lay there. Uh, You know, it's a strange idea. Here we have a big pool, and what this really means, no one seems to understand, when the waters are mysteriously stirred. You can hop in if you're one of the less lame, lame people, and then maybe you'll get a healing. But only if you're the first one. It, it, it doesn't sound a lot like God to me. If, you're, if there's sort of a ranking of lameness, super lame people over here, you're never going to get in. And then mildly lame people, you've got a chance. Really, generally, the least lame people are most likely to get a chance. It doesn't sound much like the Beatitudes to me. But here we are with a whole load of people hoping to get in the waters. And the likelihood, of course, is that around this pool were a number of people who were begging and receiving alms from people from the temple. So they were where the people would wash to go into the temple, and therefore seeing people who were lame and, and blind and leprous and missing limbs, those people who had access to the temple would think, well, these poor people, I must give them some money. 
So it was a very profitable opportunity to lie by the pool, watch people who could walk get into the temple, receive some money, but be no better off at the end of the day. It's a kind of static inertia which unfortunately has impacted, I think, our global church, but particularly our national church. We kind of watch other nations dancing into the temple courts in praise, particularly in developing nations and places where there's great, uh, generally great persecution and opposition to Christians. And yet here we are in a place where you can potentially do a lot of dancing and singing. And we're all sitting around watching other people going, why are they so happy in the Nigerian church? What's going on in China? Why is the church growing so quickly, even though they're all getting persecuted? Why is there a church in North Korea? It's kind of weird. But here we are sitting on comfortable pews, maybe thinking, well, I'm not really sure I want to do any of this exciting Christian stuff. Let's just kind of keep watching, watch other people getting encounters with Jesus, and we'll just, we'll kind of stay where we are. I like to, when I'm reading scripture, I like to kind of think about what Jesus' reaction would be. I kind of, I picture the scene. And imagine Jesus, and archaeologists have demonstrated these five colonnades were a genuine reality. This pool is, you know, in position by the temple that was. And I can imagine Jesus looking in, you know, remember he's, he's come from the countryside and here he is in the heart of the city, in the heart of a holy city. And he's seeing all of these lame and paralyzed people. It would have been quite a shock. It's a bit like going down to the Strand on a sort of Friday night at half past 11. You know, there's theatre land and there's also the underbelly of London. Loads of people, addicts, people struggling, homeless people, all lining the streets. I remember going down there with the Salvation Army when I was at school. We went on a bus. You know, good do-gooders from the boonies came down to kind of give out soup on a night. I just remember being absolutely shocked that there could be all this wealth and all this poverty in the same place. I imagine Jesus looking at, at all of these people, all of these wounded and broken people, no doubt with a mixture of sorrow and compassion and dismay, perhaps dismay because these broken people were looking for healing in the wrong place. They were looking for healing in the wrong place. Like These people weren't looking for healing where God was offering healing. They were looking for healing in something which was effectively a superstition, it's amazing to me how miracles become institutions. It, revivals become ministries with merchandise. Uh, and relics can become charms and cathedrals become visitor centers that charge you entry fees. Have you noticed that trend? You know, we, <clears throat> so revival, suddenly we have a revival t-shirt. I was there, Tacoma, 1986. You know, fantastic. Oh, you know, relics, let's touch, touch the handkerchief, maybe we'll get a blessing. Touch the screen, maybe we'll get a blessing there. You know, wh wh whatever it happens to be. Oh, a cathedral, amazing cathedral. Oh, $12.99 to get into St. Paul's Cathedral. That's amazing. I didn't know we could charge you access for a place of holy worship. And we've oh, got to keep the lights on. You know, it's strange, isn't it? We, we turn these holy places, these holy experiences, these holy moments into something that could be commodified. I wonder if someone had been healed. I mean, there's the story of Naaman who went into the water seven times. His leprosy was healed. Maybe someone was healed miraculously in the pool. Suddenly, it becomes an institution. If you get in the pool, you're going to get a healing. You've just got to be the first when the waters are mysteriously stirred. And then, you know, if you're the first in, you might get a healing. And then you've got to wait 38 years to try and get in. Is maybe this little boy who quickly stirs it and then you put your arms in his pot and then you can jump in. Someone would be making a mint out of the whole thing, no doubt. 
The first thing I want to say to you tonight about getting into the river, getting into the waters, is that as soon as we look to an institution for healing, we're looking in the wrong place. As soon as you look to an institution for your healing, spiritually, you're looking in the wrong place. Here's a paralyzed man who's been waiting for 38 years for healing in an institution, effectively the institution of the pool. It's really no surprise it hadn't happened for him. You know, there are so many people in the church who are looking for the institution to heal them. Oh, the church. If I just come enough, there's a weird principle of osmosis in church ministry. If you just sit there for long enough, the Spirit of God will mysteriously osmose into you, and you will suddenly come alive in faith. Have you heard that one? Like I, I've ministered to people who've been sitting in churches for 70 years, and I still haven't seen any as evidence of spiritual osmosis. You know, I've met some really bitter people in church, not this one, but you know, I've met some really... <laughs> I've met some really bitter people in church, some really unforgiving people in church, some, some really quite prejudicial, racist people in church. And I'm thinking, how long have you been sitting here, my friend? I've been coming to this church for 48 years. Wow, it's really not done you any good, has it? Have you, have you thought like that? Like, it's really not done you any good at all, because actually there's no such thing as spiritual osmosis. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom belongs to those who can sit down long enough and listen to enough teaching. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom belongs to those who, who can just kind of lounge in the pews. Ultimately, that is how the kingdom is going to come. If you can just hang around long enough, then all will be well. Like Jesus had loads of hang-arounders, clinger-oners. They were following him everywhere, but Jesus like challenges them and says, you brood of vipers. He didn't say, oh, well done, guys, Pharisees and Sadducees. Thanks for hanging out. This is all going to make sense to you really soon. The reality is, as soon as we look for an institution for our healing, we forego our healing. This man had let a miracle turn into an institution. It become a folklore that somehow you're going to get in the waters and you're going to get well. When actually, it was God who could offer him healing. <clears throat> you know, the reality is that the church is not an institution that was set up to heal us. We are the church. Like the fundament is that there's nothing special going on here, like in terms of osmosis. The only thing that could be special that's going on here is the community of faith and the Word of God and the Spirit of God at work amongst us. It's not osmosis, that's intentionality. And that comes from understanding that you are the body of Christ. I can't say, oh, if only this could do something to me, it can only do something with me, in me, through me collectively, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part in it. You know, as a church, the church in the world is only growing in places where the church understands itself to be a body of believers, not an institution. You want to know why the church is growing in persecuted nations? Because they can't afford to make it an institution. Because you can shut down institutions. Like, you think about the church in North Korea, no one's going to go, oh, I've got a really great idea, lads. Let's build a church, and we'll call it a church. And then we'll, like, set up committees and stuff and see how Kim Jong-un deals with that. You don't start an institution in a persecuted nation. You keep it all underground, and you keep it all real, where people co-relate as believers. You can't, you can't kill the church if the church is the body. 
Well, you can kill an individual part of the body, but you can't kill the whole body if all the body are all believers. But you can certainly bulldoze a church. You can smash up a pool, but you can't kill the king. The, the, the truth is that we need to stop looking to the institution to heal us, and then we can start to get well. It's terrifying how quickly we become passive in our own stories, isn't it? You know, I, I, I become passive in my own spiritual story. Maybe you do this too. Maybe it's just me and I'm just a weak Christian. But, but I, I, I go to a conference or something with other clergy and I, I'll see like, people at the front like this. I'm like, looking at them like giving them daggers. Like, what did you have for breakfast? Spiritual Weetabix. Like, why are you looking so full on for Jesus? Have you been working really hard like the rest of us or just lounging around in the spirit? You know, like what's going on in your spiritual life that you're looking that furthest? Like you can't be working hard enough. You should be exhausted like the rest of us. You, know, you can find yourself kind of, you know, dismissing and discharging those people who are actually on fire for Jesus because it doesn't fit with your narrative. Like we in church can kind of look you know, curiously at people who look like they might be having some sort of supernatural experience with God and think, why isn't it to me? They're probably faking it. Who's thought that? Most people, but they've never admit it. <laughs> you know, in this way, we discredit ourselves because we're, we're looking to the institution. We're, we're becoming passengers in our own story. We're waiting for the church to do it to us. We're not really participant with God as the body. And here is a man who spent 38 years not getting into the water. If Jesus hadn't intervened, he would have spent another 38 years if he had it. You see, in psychological terms, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And 38 years is a really long time to say, for 38 years, he's laying here by this pool, not getting into the water. And nothing is going to change in this person's story in order that they get into the water unless they have an encounter with Jesus. What is going to change in your story in order that you might have a fresh encounter with Jesus? And are you satisfied right now with the level to which you've got into the water? I, I'm not satisfied. I mean, not in your performance, but I'm just thinking of my own. You know, I'm not satisfied. Like, people think, oh, you know, you've been a priest for a long time, you know, you must have a really amazing spiritual life and feel really fulfilled spiritually, and, you know, you must get up in the morning and just go, oh, praise God. But life isn't like that. I want more. But how am I becoming a passenger in my own spiritual story that I'm not hungry to participate as Jesus invited me to? The first thing we need to do is to redefine our desire. You know, <clears throat> it seems to me, imagine the scenario. Here's a man who's paralyzed, lying on a mat by a pool that proposes to heal that person. They've been lying there for 38 years. What do you think they want? You guys don't know. This is terrifying. He wants healing, right? Okay, he wants healing. <coughs> so what question are you not going to ask the man? It's like, what do you want? You know, like, do you really want to get well? You'd be like, yes, thanks, Jesus. I've been here for 38 years, like lying by this pool on my paralyzed man's mat, waiting to get into the waters. So I think you could probably surmise from that that, yes, I probably do want to get healed, thanks very much. Would you be a bit annoyed? I'd be pretty annoyed. I've been lying by a pool that says, I need healing for 38 years, and someone asked me what I really want. But actually, it's a really, really great question to ask. Because it looks like he wants healing, but does he really want healing? So many people in the church look like they want encounter with Jesus, 
Not really sure. Why are you here? I promised him I wouldn't break the church whilst he's away. It's a really dangerous. <laughs> Why are you all here? What are you doing here? No, it's a serious question. Like, ask yourself, what am I doing here? Like, because it looks like I want encounter with Jesus, but do I really want encounter with Jesus? Is that really why I'm here? Or am I here through habit or happenstance? Or, or am I putting my faith in an institution? Jesus says, you know, what do you, do you really want effectively? Do you really want to get well? Do you want to get well? Is that what you really want? And in the first century, that wasn't a stupid question to ask anyway. I mean, the apostles got in trouble for healing beggars who were sick and basically putting them out of business. If you were a professional beggar around the temple courts and laying on your mat and someone actually said, right, I'm going to heal your limb, that's you suddenly not earning any money. So to actually say, do you actually want to get well or are you a professional? That's an important question. Are you a professional Christian or do you really want a real encounter with Jesus? I, I don't want to be a professional Christian. I don't want to be a sort of, you know, I, <clears throat> my daughter had a party, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but I, my daughter had a party last night and all her friends call me Father Will. I find it really terrifying because I'm not uh, sort of that kind of persuasion of Christians say, oh, Father Will, they think it's really cool and really funny at the same time. I know they're really taking the mickey out of me. <clears throat> I'm trying to like find a cool edge to it, but I know it's just a way of them putting me down. <laughs> There's something about the whole narrative, Father Will, Father Will, um, that, that makes me feel like, oh, 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 I'm that professional Christian guy that like you're all making fun of. Like the heart of what do I really want? Is it that I really want powerful living encounter with Jesus? Do I really want to be transformed? If you took away the Father will bit and I was just will, would it still matter? If I wasn't a priest anymore, would Jesus still matter to me? If I lost sight of the institution, if I wasn't part of it, if I didn't have a title, would I still want to get in the water? Ask yourself, do you want to get in the water with Jesus? Do you want a face-to-face -face powerful encounter? Or has passivity overtaken your spiritual narrative? What do you really want to do? The reality for all of us is that there'll be broken identities that we're really fond of. You know, we fall in love with the institution, we become passive in our own story, and then we kind of like the identities that we've got. Maybe it's the father will identity, but there might be broken identities we're rather fond of, sins we're rather attached to, lifestyles that we've got comfortable with. Going deeper into the love of God is a shaking. It can be transforming. It requires deep sacrifice. You have to really want it if you're really going to get there. Here's a guy who spent 38 years lying down as the kind of paralyzed guy who lives by the pool. Everyone would have known him. Hey! You're still here? Yeah, I'm still here. Still waiting for the waters to be stirred. You know, it become his identity. I sound really harsh. I am actually a pastor. I'm not like ribbing it out of the poor paralyzed guy. I'm just saying, look, he was there for such a long time. We've got to start asking bigger questions. How long have I been here doing the same thing and getting the same negative results? Something about the circumstance left him with an identity of passivity. And within that, within within that and within the 20 years of church leadership that I've experienced there are perpetually two things that lead to that kind of stagnation across the board and they are self-pity and blame you know it, it's amazing how quickly self-pity and blame become a key reason why we don't actually encounter the Jesus that we want to encounter in our lives it, it's the it's the reality that self-pity and blame keep us lying on the bank rather than actually getting into the pool 
the paralyzed man does it perfectly. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool, self-pity. And then, oh, other selfish lame people are getting in there before me and getting healed. Blame. It's amazing how we, we do it here. Oh, you know, oh, I'm, having a, I'm so tired at the moment. Well, you wouldn't understand, just can't make it to church. I'm just absolutely done in. Self-pity. And, and also, my housemate's being a right pain at the moment, and you know, they put their washing on before mine, so I had to stay behind to get my washing in and take their load out and hang it up. Blame. But you know, the reality is that, that, that we've been fantastic at self-pity and blame since the beginning of time. You know, Adam's there busy. Oh, but Lord, I was kind of hungry for an apple. It was all her. She took it. Blame. Like throughout the Christian story is self-pity, oh, poor me, and then blame somebody else. And within our own spiritual journey, that'll be exactly the same thing. <coughs> Why am I not getting into the waters? Why am I not having an encounter with Jesus? Why am I not in the river? Well, oh, it's a tough time for me at the moment. I'm expecting all of the stars to align. I'm expecting the waters of this mysterious pool to be stirred at just the right moment, and then I'm going to descend, and I'm going to have a fabulous time with Jesus. I'm just going to wait 38 years for that reality. Now, I wonder if you're waiting for circumstances that work for you rather than actually commanding the circumstances that you're living in. I don't see anyone in the persecuted church going, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to wait for revival to break out. Martin Smith's going to come over and lead us to some delirious revival songs, and then I'm going to get in the water. When I read this account of the paralyzed man as a pastor you know I feel compassion for him initially I'm like oh you poor guy that must be so bad you know no one's helped you into this pool and then other poor lame guys are also diving in there in front of you and pushing out the way that's really bad but then actually I'm thinking no hold on a minute you're telling me you spent 38 years lying by this pool and you haven't made a single friend what sort of life is that you're telling me you spent 38 years lying down in this place every single day, you haven't made a single alliance. You've not spent any time building any relationships with anyone around you. You're telling me that in 38 years, you couldn't have instigated a ticketing system where like, you know, you, like in the NHS, you've got your ticket, number 159, paralyzed person, you're in next. You know, number 172, yep, you're up next. He didn't do anything. He, he was okay to talk to Jesus, but he just didn't spend any time building any community fabric with the people around him in order that he might get into the river. Now, of course we've got compassion on this man. He's in a really difficult place. But I want to say to you, what was this man doing in the waiting? Was he so passive in his story that he didn't think actually that there might be a community around him that might help him to access the river? Like, if we're sitting in our seats here thinking, God, you've got to do all this to me. I'm here. I'm waiting for you to teleport me into a great environment with you. We, we've missed it. We've inv we're invited to participate through decision in faith. Faith is a spiritual decision to participate and commune with God. And faith is us acknowledging that we're part of a church that is horizontal as well as vertical, that the people around us matter that we're called to lead one another into the waters in really practical ways. I don't want to over-criticize the paralyzed man, but I just cannot believe that in a lifetime, he didn't actually enable someone to help him participate in this journey of faith. What would you have done? What are you doing? 
I got a call from a friend earlier on. He wanted to just have a conversation with me about a mess he'd made. I was great. I've got to say, it was a great conversation. I was totally humbled. And I was encouraged that he called me and he said, in the spirit of accountability, I just knew I needed to call you. I was thinking, wow, we've been friends for a really long time. It is lovely to know that you still feel able to say, I've messed up. I'm like, that is faith. Right there, I want that. I'm, I'm a big wig out there, but in here I'm just a little kid going, please help me. I'm in a mess. That's getting into the waters. How, how are you doing that for one another? How are we doing that for one another? You know, the church is full of people who will call out your compassion, but they don't really want anything to do with your challenge. They long to be pitied. They're happy to blame, but they're never willing to play their part in helping others encounter Jesus. I don't think we're that sort of church, but I, I want us to know that as a real challenge. How are we going to help one another to get into the waters and to bring that kind of accountability, that kind of challenge? If we're going to encounter more of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ, it's going to come from a disposition that says no infirmity, no opposition, no circumstance, no power can stop me getting closer to Jesus. Paul says it in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's a battle cry, not a lullaby. But what I find fascinating about it is charismatic Christians like me particularly have gone, oh, it's so lovely. Jesus is like a little candle in my heart and he's never going to go out whatever happens. You know, that's how we've treated that passage. And yet Paul is there like famine, disease, nakedness, shipwreck, sword, prison. He's living it. He's like going, nothing is going to separate me from the love of God made known in Christ Jesus. And we're all going, oh, oh, it's such a nice news. Now I can carry on with my life. Everything's going to be great because Jesus is always with me. Like, it's got to be more like, oh, come on, let's go for this thing. Let's really hunger after it. And it's going to be born in prayer, service of the poor, and a pursuit of holiness. Like, that's a fact. Like, ultimately, what is going to change, like, every revival and spirit of history is come through a passion for prayer, a hunger to serve the poor, and the pursuit of holiness, to be set aside for the Lord. This is not like works hour with will. Come here and, like, let's all try harder, and maybe we'll be saved. This is about the fact that we are saved purely by grace, entirely in faith through Jesus Christ who went to the cross for our sake, who loved us whilst we were still far off. And yet in response to his love, we're saying, I want more of this. Like as a response to what he has already done, I want to give my life to him. I want to serve his world. I want to champion the needs of the poor. I want to pray for the lost, the last, and the least. And I want holiness in my life as a sign to the world that it's worth following this Jesus. When it comes to getting into the waters, as Simon said on the weekend, we just need Jesus to really be the main thing and stop getting distracted by the non-things because actually improving the non-things will have no notable difference on the spiritual temperature of this church. You know, there will be non-things that we can spend a lot of time, oh, I don't like that very much. It's all right, doesn't matter really. 
Coffee's not great. Well, actually, the coffee is actually fantastic if you've ever tried it. But, you know, there'll be something don't like. I don't like the chairs. Don't like the lights. There'll be something you'll get. I'll get something gets I go all the time. Don't like this. I don't like that. I'm just saying, it's fine. Stuff we don't like. Stuff like stuff we don't like all the time, isn't there? Lots of stuff we don't like in life. But if we get distracted by the non-things and we don't get in for the main thing, we've missed it. What's really interesting to me is that at the end of the day, Jesus does not talk about the pool once in this entire passage. He doesn't say, oh, this is a special pool for healing. When's it, when's it going to get stirred? Or even shall I stir it? Because I'm God. He doesn't say anything about the pool. He doesn't like, oh, yes, this is the magic pool. I've heard lots of people have got well here before. Jesus does not say, paralyzed man, you know what? I'm going to help you get into the pool. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus can offer you the healing because ultimately any healing that is received is a healing from God, not a healing from a pool. Any healing that's received here is not a healing from the priest or from the church, is a healing from Jesus. Any miracle that is experienced in your life is a miracle because the Son of God died for you. Any miracle or experience that you have of God's benevolence is through Christ to you by His Spirit. It's not because of any other thing. There is no magical screen to touch. There is no special secret key to the kingdom of God. There is no special pool that can heal you. There are no magical words that you can say. Everything, all, absolutely, totally, the whole shebang is about Jesus. That's it. And if you really want to be set on fire or however you want to describe it, get in the river or dive into the pool. All you need to know is it's about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's through Jesus. It's to Jesus. It's about Jesus. And it's in his name and by his name and through his stripes that we are healed and forgiven. That's it. It would have been really quick if I just said that at the beginning and then we just got on with something really dramatic. You know... We're going to worship in just a moment. But I find it fascinating that we can become really focused on our healing. And whatever that might be, our emotional healing, our spiritual healing, our physical healing. And, and that can be the thing. I, you know, I, I spend my whole life talking about mental and emotional health. That's my thing. I love talking about it. I love ministering into it. That's the thing that God's called me to do. The man receives a healing... And then he gets spiritual access into the temple. And Jesus meets him at the end of the story in the temple. And, you know, they could have high-fived each other. The guy could have gone, hey, Jesus, thanks so much for healing me. It's amazing. But Jesus has got a harsh message for the man. He says to him, see, you're well again. Great. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, it's not a friendly greeting. But what it's a sign of is that actually... The man had received something from God that day, but he had to choose to then participate in what it looked like to be an agent of the king, an agent of the kingdom. Like, holiness matters. And again, in the charismatic Christian movement, we're like, it's all about just having faith in Jesus. Try your best. Keep smiling. Just, you know, everything's under the blood. Don't worry about it. 
But it really mattered. It mattered to Jesus. He's saying, look, you've received a healing. Praise God. But now stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Now, we could spend hours talking about whether there's a correlation between sin and, and disability. There, uh, in my view, there isn't. But when he's saying something worse might happen to you, he's saying you could lose the kingdom. Something worse, judgment could come against you. Saying holy life matters. Like the three things I want us to focus on this term are prayer, service of the poor, because they matter to Jesus and they should matter to us, and holiness. There's no other formula in my mind. This isn't even a formula. But there's, there are only three things I believe that we should be focusing on if we want a deeper encounter with Jesus. That's it. Let's pray harder and pray more fervently. Let's love the poor like he loved them. And let's seek holiness and godliness in the way in which we live. Like, if the, if the tide is still going out, like, that's not our business. All our business is seek the Lord with all your heart. Love him. Love the people he loves and seek holiness and godliness in the way in which we live. As a response to the faith, to the salvation that we've received, not, not for it. Don't get this the wrong way around. We are responding to a God who saved us. We're not seeking the salvation of God who already loves us. Don't worship the institution worship the Savior. Don't become passive in your spiritual story. Be active and on the front foot. Don't let your identity be your struggle. Place it in who he says you are. Don't be filled with self-pity and blame. Take responsibility and dive in. Pray. Serve the poor. Seek holiness and godliness. Why don't we stand as we worship?